0: listening to cadence a podcast for creatives. I'm Hafsa Majinua. and I'm Yana Zaro. If you're new to the podcast, Cadence is a conversation around topics that we wish we'd been more informed on when we started out on our career paths. The hope is to arm you the listener with some takes and tips that just might be of service as you venture out on your own unique path and also just to have a fun conversation.
1: Yes. We want to thank Venue by 4M for providing an amazing space to collaborate and produce this podcast. Today, the topic is leveraging education and how to cultivate self-worth regardless of going an academic route. So really what we're examining today is whether you go to school, whether you're self-taught or whether you're taking workshops and getting certificates, as long as you continue to learn. We are so excited to have Dr. Cam McComb with us on our first guest episode. She is the Associate Professor of Visual Arts Education at Eastern Michigan University. She is the NAEA National Art Educator of 2023. She's the Western Region Higher Education Awardee of 2023, the Task Force for Art Teacher Recruitment and Retention member in 2023. A graduate school for art leaders class of 2018 and an MAEA higher education division co chair since 2019 until the president, excuse me, 2019 until present day. She is a certified trainer. In Erickson and Lanning, concept based curriculum and instruction. Oh my goodness, oh my Dr. No. Cam, I can't um, tell you how excited we are to have you and how privileged we feel to have your expertise here. Yes.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Hafsa Yan. Yeah, I'm so delighted to be here. And uh, yeah, you just, when you teach for a long time and you work for a long time, they <laughs> put those little bullet statements, you know, you, you get to step back and kind of look at your work from there a different perspective. So I appreciate you mentioning all that hard work. Oh, it's so impressive and so
1: deserved. I've seen you in the classroom. It's been some time, but I do remember the passion and also the way that you are trying to parse out like what each student is looking for and feeling and just trying to drive them to have their own drive.
2: Yeah. You know, I get students who have made the decision to become an art teacher, which is fabulous, but when they make that decision, they don't always understand what that means. And so... Many of them had really great experiences in art, whether um, it was in high school or later in life, and they decide they want to teach and they think, OK, I'm just going to put out a bunch of art supplies and have kids go at it. And it's like, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, that is part of it. But like we are a profession right. and there is so much more pedagogically involved, right, in actually making creative learning happen. And so it really is like, it sets them back a bit. And then Mm -hmm. once they realize like, oh man, this is kind of cool. I had no idea there there was a science involved in this. And so Uh, once they embrace that, uh, it's great to see the passion come through.
0: That's so great. It almost goes back to what we had been talking about in our first episode around, you know, kind of making a plan and finding that structure and creative work, you know, everything, even that germ of an idea. It starts with, you know, just building a foundation to move toward the thing that you want to do. And like people associate artisticness and being creative with kind of this loosey goosey approach, but yeah. everything has sort of that foundation and at least some structure, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. When people throw around that word creativity and it hit me, um, you know, decades into my teaching, I realized, ah, creativity is not a subject. Hmm. It's an approach. And so you can be creative with it, whether you're camping or driving your car, or taking a road trip or in your profession, like it's the ability to step back and look at possibility. Yes. It, right, The ability to not be entrenched in a fixed mindset, the ability to listen and take in multiple perspectives, and so anybody can be taught the basics of creative thinking, mm-hmm. and some some children are reared in that environment, and then many, many are not, and so that's why you see young people who are super confident in their creative abilities i you know they were nurtured into that. And other people just grow up thinking they're not creative. And it's taking that moment to realize like, hey, creativity is just a set of skills that anybody can learn. And with practice, you will become more flexible in how you apply those skills. That's
1: so powerful to Mm, hear. I've heard it in bits and pieces like that before, but I feel like You just succinctly wrapped up everything I've ever wanted to say to a client Mm -hmm. that says, we only do things this way. And this is how we've always done it.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. None of that. No, no, no. no. That's
1: good. That's good to know. We're going to move into the labor portion of the episode. Um, Do you want to kick it off? Yeah.
0: So, I mean, kind of thinking in terms of, you know, you know, creative and artistic labor, you know, where do we find kind of the good stuff in our practice, you know, what makes all of the things that we work on, you know, really worth it. Um, you know, how do we receive criticism or affirmation of our work, um, and how do we take it, you know, whether it's in a good way or how do we fold it into our working process? Um, how it, how does it shape the way that we see ourselves and our professional worth? And so, I think you know, we have a couple of questions for you, Doctor Cam, that yeah. maybe you can you know kind of sh- share your expertise on starting with, you know, what do you see your students struggling with the most?
2: That's a good question. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so my students are coming in wanting to be art students. Some of them came in because they also felt that they had strong artistic skills. Some of them also might feel a little bit inadequate about their artistic skills. Like they look around and see people drawing better than them, painting better than them, but they know they have a passion for the arts and they want to share that. So there's that struggle. Like they're looking around being competitive, right? And you just have to say, Hey, everybody's on a different path. Uh, In college, I also see a range of ages, so I have that student who comes right out of high school and mm. um, yeah, they can be super confident or really shy, just depends. Um, but they're like 20, 19 and 20. But then they're sitting next to sometimes someone who's 35, 40, oh. 45. And that can be intimidating because no matter the age um, or, or no matter the background, I should say, a person who has a few more years is Typically a person who's not afraid to ask a few questions. Mm -hmm. And so that can feel intimidating to some of the young people. So sometimes I have to explain, like, we're all on different paths and you can learn from everybody. Um, But the two things I see students really struggle with once they've made a commitment to come to school and study um, is kind of related to what I mentioned before. Um, They really struggle with divergent thinking. Right. We have we, we need convergent and divergent thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. So convergent thinking just for listeners. Right. Is that the ability to take multiple ideas and bring them into focus into one one answer, one goal, one path. But divergent thinking is the absolute opposite. If you were to take an idea and say, all right, how can we blow this up and really think about all the related ideas, all the related solutions, and then maybe some that are completely unrelated back to the the out-of-the-box thinking and, um, you know, being able to think about multiple solutions. And part of that comes from schooling, right, where they're taught to fill in the blank, answer the question, and uh, they have to specifically be taught or take the abilities they've been taught at home or in other places and be allowed to utilize them in a learning environment, And, um, even when I was teaching fifth and sixth grade, I'd get fifth graders just say, okay, but tell me what you want. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I want you to come up with 20 different things. You can imagine that this, this object I've just handed you could be, or could be used for, right? So they have to extend their thinking and imagine. So I see them struggle with that because they want to be successful. Um, but they also haven't been taught skills of divergent thinking.
0: And so it's sort of interesting, too, when you, you know, you think about something like that, it, it can't really be taught necessarily. So how do you sort of, you know, challenge someone, you know, whether they're younger or older to kind of step outside of that comfort zone that they have for themselves and to sort of embrace this different way of thinking?
2: But it can be taught. Um, there's a really good book. It's out of print now, but um, Nicholas Rooks, the R-O-U... K-E-S. He was a Canadian educator and he had a great book that just really taught different strategies. So like mm-hmm. we're sitting here in studio and I have my water bottle that has a screw top cap. And so we know it's a cap to a water bottle. But if I teach students at a young age or, or whenever they engage me, it's all right. But what else could it be? Mm-hmm. And so when they start shifting perspective, like, oh, well, it's round and I bet it could float. like it could be a life raft right? So I'm on the ocean. It could be a life raft. It could be a cap, like a pillbox hat, yeah. you know, <laughs> that a bride could wear or something like, like when you start th- it could be the tire. If I had four of them, I could pin them on the side of a car and they could roll mm-hmm. and they could be tires for a car. Okay. So it's not, it's not made of rubber. It's not that, but when they, st- you can teach them strategies for thinking. So when they start taking objects and understanding that I can envision different ways to utilize that, then you gradually transfer them to say, okay, you know, we're talking about how to organize this space. What are some creative ways we might organize it? I love that. Right. So the architects would come yeah. in and say, oh, we need to blow out that wall. You're, and you're right. like, what? <laughs> it didn't occur to me to you know take walls away and add windows or let's let's bust up this concrete here and put a hole in the middle of it. Like, right? Like people who've been trained to see the possibilities can do that, and those skills can be taught, especially if we start young.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's harder, right, as we get to adults for our brains. (laughs) Right. The word plasticity, you know, I've been paying a lot of attention to that with my recent birthday, right? Like, what are we doing to (laughs) make sure our brains are plastic and malleable? And um, yeah, but you can teach those strategies. I love that. That's really good to know.
0: Because, yeah, it's really, it's like reshaping or sort of reintroducing or introducing a different way of seeing something, right? It's like adjusting your perspective. Like, sure, something looks one way, but what are the possibilities? How do you adapt?
2: And how do you see what's not there? Mm. Right. Like looking, okay, well, what am I not seeing? What, what opinions are not being expressed in a conversation? Right. So that's when people can start to learn to see bias, for example, Mm. right? Like we, people can't see bias because they don't look for what's not said or who's not included, Mm. um, things like that. It's also
1: interesting, I recognize in my son's classroom, the way that it's set up is so drastically different than what I grew up with. So we had rows of seats, or maybe if it got creative, your teacher said, what three other people do you want to sit in? My son has areas in the room where he can fidget, where he can sit on a ball or a stool that teeters, or he can move his feet while he's at his desk. If he doesn't want to sit at a desk, he can move into a soft area and sit on the ground or have um, sensory or tactile experiences. And I wonder how much of that contributes to the rigidity and how we've come to college or higher learning as as very uh, rigid students, Mm -hmm. right? Our whole environment has taught us to sit a certain way, stand a certain way, walk down the hall a certain way. That's right. And that's
2: probably some of the product that's coming to you. That's right. Right. And what you're talking about is adaptive seating, right? Like um, just the ability. And we know, you know, and that arose because we had students that were identified like with um, attention deficit disorder and so forth. So they said, okay, it helps students with um, these um, variances to be able to move as they are thinking. But the beauty is, all right, let, now let's apply it to everybody. So mm. sure. Mm-hmm. If a student wants to sit there, there's students that might want to lay on the floor. Right. Sure. And as long as they're paying attention, right? Like why yeah. can't they lay on the floor? Uh, especially while they're young and capable, right. you know, let's
1: let yes, them do it. I know. Let's I don't like, want to do that right now. <laughs>
2: no, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <my laughs> sorry. Age might be a thing through here. I don't know. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. The other thing back to your struggle question is, um, I find students in the arts, I don't have statistics to back this up, but I'm telling you, a huge percentage of my students struggle with perfectionism. Mm, yep. And I explained to them, look, perfectionism is a learning disability. Ooh. And when they, they, they do, right, like you both went, what? Like your head <laughs> tipped back and I was like, yeah, it is actually, um, right. So you have to figure if, if you have a, the disability or an other ability, let's say, um, that prevents you from being successful in your learning. And perfectionism does that, right? Because students who suffer from perfectionism don't turn work in Mm, because it's not perfect. And then they miss the deadline. Then they are racked with anxiety. Some are good and they'll come to the professor and ask for an extension. Some just ignore the fact that they didn't turn it in. Then they feel shame. Mm. And because they feel shame, they don't go to class. And then they miss what's being said in class, right? So it's this big snowball. And before you know it, you can watch a really great student just drop off the radar and eventually drop out of class, sometimes drop out of school, because they're locked in this perfectionistic cycle. Mm. Wow. That's a really interesting
0: perspective. And it makes so much sense when you kind of explain it that way. Because I think even for me, you know, when I was in school, you know being a perfectionist was sort of this weird badge of honor. It's like you right? Know, oh, you're you need everything to be just so, you know, But if it's actually creating friction for you as a student and during your learning experience, that's that's a problem. That's so a yeah,
2: Well, and if we can flip it, like because yeah. if I walk into the room and I'm working if the three of us are working together, I'm like, okay, you guys need to understand I'm a perfectionist. Right. Yeah. Like what? Well, right. That means it's got to be my way. Right. Mm-hmm. That means I'm judging you, and I'm probably stepping back, and I'm going to be the one that has the final say in how the group work's going to occur because I'm a perfectionist. Well, mm-hmm. that's snobby. It's elitist. It's anti collaboration. It, right. I mean, it's. You might as well just work on your own, which mm-hmm. they then do. They ditch their partners. The partners feel abandoned. They go do their own work. And then they complain that they had to do all the work and that they <laughs> created the environment where that had to happen. I'm getting flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, who do we know that is like that? Hmm. Now, now, if you're creative, like I know you are. I, I think we all sort of dip into this pool, right? Like we have these moments where we envision because we're good at envisioning, right? We can envision like, oh, my gosh, the ultimate would be. This This. thing Mm -hmm. I'm imagining. Well, it's not always practical. Right. Exactly. Right. It's not always practical. Sometimes it is. Um, I'll tell you who wrote a really great book is, um, oh, the name's going to escape me. Creative Habits. Twyla Tharp Mm -hmm. talks about six reasons we fail. And one of them is like we lose our nerve, Mm -hmm. which I think can happen in perfectionism, right? Because you can imagine, like, I can imagine it can be this great thing, but then I'm afraid to actually try for that
1: right yes yeah. yes i definitely guilty here <laughs> same mm-hmm. Absolutely. same well
2: i know when that's i was working on trip. my dissertation i had students i was getting them to document their ability to think like artists we were using the studio habits of mind research out of harvard's project zero and so i'm having them document and i thought in my mind i'm like all right um well where else do you think but in your mind i guess but i'm, so <laughs> thinking, that's what I'm thinking um where would be the coolest place? If I want them to think like artists, where would be the coolest place to have their work on display? And I was like, oh, well, the museum. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to the local museum. at the time I was living in Columbus, so I reached out to the director, um, Cindy Foley, and was like, hey, you know I'm doing this work. I'd love to display my students' work in the museum. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're all about that. Oh, and so we had the work we had an exhibition at the museum. They made digital videos to um, sort of document their thinking, and we played the videos in the auditorium. Wow. Like, I, wow. it was a moment where I didn't lose my nerve, mm-hmm. and I was just mm-hmm. like, what the heck? I'm already not showing there. Mm. Let's just ask, <laughs> right? And and because I asked, it opened up. Well, could it hurt? Right. But I think, right, so it's easy to lose your nerve and not follow through. Mm. So that would be something that I think people who struggle, like, you just have to set that aside and say, hey... All they can do is say no, and you already don't have it. So it's not like you're losing anything in that process.
1: That's a great sample example for people. I'm glad you shared that story. Yeah. A nerve, creative nerve, nerve. too. It's almost like well, you don't know if
0: it's something isn't going to work unless you just try it, right? You have to at least try it. Because if you didn't try it, you didn't try it. You'll never know.
2: That's right. That's right. When I think the um, social media uh, contributes to this perfectionism, right? We've seen research in that, that people are just putting their best selves out into the world through their social media and Instagram. Like you don't Mm -hmm. put your failures on Instagram necessarily. It's all curated. Yeah. So everybody thinks that everybody else's life is perfect. And so that contributes to that. And then also, I think we have times we get trapped in this prescriptive curriculum, once again, that we need to break free from where students, they don't need to have total choice, but they at least need to have some agency Mm -hmm. over their learning So that they can develop self-efficacy. You know, I grew up and we always talked about self-esteem and they've realized now that 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 whole thing just (laughs) really didn't work, you know, but I didn't, you know, I was well into adulthood before I understood the term self-efficacy. I was like, ah, like, do you feel capable? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm hoping to do in my own work with my pre-service teachers is for them to understand, do they feel capable? Can they create an environment where their own students feel capable of making art, but also thinking about the big ideas involved in making art? Absolutely.
1: Wow. They're so lucky to have you posing these questions at them early on in their careers. Um, Could you come and tell them that? (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) I would be happy to do that. Tell me what day and time. Um, One of the things that we were really wondering in your practice is how can incoming students who perhaps can't access the kind of education they'd want, like making the choice between a prestigious college versus community college or a trade school versus higher education, how can they navigate that option and still cultivate skill sets in a healthy way so that they're not down about themselves for this hard choice they've had to make?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, I think that the thing is, don't get hung up on status. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, you're going to go to a fancy school. You're going to have a a big ticket tuition, right? Like you're going to go to a local community school and you're probably going to pay less in tuition. Don't make the assumption that because you go to a big name school that you're getting a better education. Sometimes the bigger the school, the more remote the professors are. You could be getting classes taught by their graduate assistant who has no teaching experience Mm -hmm. because the professor's off doing research. No, that's not the case in all the schools. I mean, I went to some pretty decent schools, and I did get to work with my professors. Um, But you want to work with a small program. You want them to know you by name, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: right? Um, You also, there's schools where you have to have a portfolio to get accepted into the school, and there's nothing wrong with that. I love working at Eastern because we don't require a portfolio. Oh, So a lot of, you know, I didn't know, I was on a business track. My parents, you know, I was a first generation graduate, college graduate. Mm-hmm. My dad went to school, but didn't complete. And so I just sort of knew it was my mission. Like, uh, all right, it's on me. I right. got to be the one, right? I'm the first one. And um, you just really have to focus on why you're there, what you're going to complete And while you're there, you need to um, get to know your professors, Mm -hmm. which can be really intimidating. Yeah. I was terrified to talk to my professors. I'm pretty sure I sort of cried. right? Like, <laughs> oh, like you go in and you're like, oh, I just want to talk to you. And right. you're just so nervous. You've got your faces wet. You don't know why. It's like, yeah. um, why am I
0: sweating? It's just a person.
2: Yeah, I know. You would never know that now. You're like, really? You're afraid right. to talk to people. But professors were intimidating to me. And I didn't know any professors growing up, right? Like my family was, I just didn't know people that went to college much. And so... Getting to know your professors is key if you're wanting to really experience the full college experience.
0: I think that's a really good tip and, and something I, I sort of learned that the hard way when I was, you know, just at Washtenaw Community College, because it's a smaller school, you have a bit more access to your instructors just by virtue of the classes being, you know, more intimate. Um, but I think it's so important for students, you know, no matter the school that they're going to, to always remember your instructor is accessible to you. Your instructor should be available to you as a resource. They're meant to be, you know, not just your instructor, but your mentor, someone who can, you know, hopefully guide you in the right direction. So if you have questions, you know, don't don't feel like you're talking to a celebrity, you know, they're still people, they're here to help and support you.
2: Yeah. And if you get to know, like, what I mean, there's students who just suck up, right? They're nice to you. (laughs) They're nice to you because, you know, they learn how to play school, Mm -hmm. right? So there's that student. But if you take the time to really understand why the professor is passionate, like why are they there teaching you, um, you're likely to gain more from the experience because you're going to ignite that passion. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to see you as a person, not as a number. Um, The other thing critical, I tell my students, I'm like, look, you need to get to know your professors because it's harder to flunk a student you don't know. <laughs> right. If you just have a name on a paper and that name never shows up in your class oh, as a sure. face, yeah. or if that person's struggling and never talks in class and you don't really even know who they are, it's easy to just make the assumption that they're lazy, they're not interested. Um But I find my students like I had I had one student super sleepy, you know, it was early class. He's I I could tell he's hardly keeping his and I just sort of made an offhanded comment like, oh, probably out partying last night, huh? And he just looked at me. I was like, "Um, no, I was working the late shift last night and I had to close up at 1230 at night. And then I came home and had to do two hours of homework. And I'm riding on about two to three hours sleep right now. And I said, I am really sorry. I, I will never make that assumption again. I appreciate you telling me that. And from then on, I just saw my students in a different way, Mm -hmm. because they're working two and three jobs, they are committed. A lot of them don't have family putting them through school. Mm -hmm. But they are committed to doing it themselves. And I just so respect the work that they're doing. And that's why I want them, I tell them, like, you got to get to know your professors because I want you to succeed. And they need to know that if you're sleepy, it's not because you don't care. Right, You're tired,
1: (laughs) legitimately.
2: That's such a great reminder, though,
1: that students really need to communicate to their professors. What do I need? Where am I coming from? Don't assume that every college or higher learning setting is going to be the same. Right. And to give. And also to give you the benefit of the doubt, right? Like Mm -hmm. if he had come to you and said that you would have had so much empathy for his situation.
2: Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they just need to let go of expectations and realize they can learn from anybody. Absolutely.
0: Yes. So kind of pivoting a little bit, you know, thinking about the field of, you know, arts and art education right now. Yeah. What do you feel is the most hopeful? What can we kind of look forward to. What's exciting?
2: Yeah, well, okay. The most (laughs) exciting (laughs) is there are jobs, Yes. right? Like, first of all, there have been jobs prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been this fallacy out there for decades, like, oh, well, you can't get jobs in the arts because when districts need to pass a levy, they threaten to take away the arts. Mm -hmm. So people think they acted on that threat. But when you actually go and look at districts, very few Actually took action. Mm. The threat worked, and they passed their levy. Every now and then, you'll find a district where that didn't happen. But now, with the national, it's not just a teacher shortage; it's a national education shortage. There's a shortage of bus drivers, Mm. administrators, secretaries, school aides, everybody that touches the field of education. um, We have shortages right now, and we have massive shortages in teachers. Mm And so I've never seen it. They're they're recruiting my student teachers. They haven't even finished student teaching and they're trying to hire them for jobs before they've even completed their full education, which is great. So, you know, they need to to be aware of that. And um, the other thing about the arts, I think that the pandemic taught us is when people couldn't do anything. Yeah, they couldn't Mm -hmm. think Mm -hmm. they could create And they could express themselves. And we saw a lot of people do that, like whether it was hope or angst Mm -hmm. or sorrow. We had the tragedy of the George Floyd killing during that time. And we saw how people responded Mm -hmm. visually. Yes. I mean, they turned out in mass and were painting murals and Mm -hmm. signs and and that made a cultural impact. Right. So. Being able like when 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 in human history have we been able to say, wow, we now see the power of the visual and how it can impact us. So that to me, seeing that cultural shift is great. It's not the circumstances, but the fact that it made an impact, uh, I think, is a good sign for the profession of art education.
0: That's a really good thing to point out, because, yeah, definitely during the pandemic, you could see, you know, so many people trying to reach each other in different ways and just trying to communicate and feel close to one another mm-hmm. and creating like art is the best medium, one of the best mm-hmm. mediums to try and reach people and have that sort of shared experience and empathy. Think about how many
2: examples we saw where people were using music to mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. Playing music out from out their, their balconies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just <laughs> that's incredible. Beautiful.
1: So we love to talk about what is the light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. What where do we get the payoff? Um, now that we're thinking, we've asked you some questions about the challenges for students. What are some of the practical ways that? Um, students can mentally unpack after a semester without losing knowledge that they've acquired because school can be so grueling. Mm-hmm. Um, it can take away so much mental, physical, psychological energy. How do we how do we keep students motivated and going?
2: Yeah, that's that's good. And you know, once again, if they get out of the mindset of having to feel like, I, these are all these facts I have and I need to spend my summer like reviewing all my notes and memorizing all the facts, like no, set it all aside. And you need to let it percolate yeah. and you need to figure out, right. Like what's going to emerge, what's going to bubble up. But, um, practically they need to, uh, I need to unplug.
1: Mm.
2: Yes. Spend yeah. some time, whether it's every day, like a, a time, it could be an hour a day, or it could be a week where you unplug from digital devices. God, yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a really good book called stolen focus that talks about the fact that, this is like, this is our focus is being taken away from us and it's not even our fault. It's conglomerates. It's right. Like we know they're using a log logarithms to market to us. Mm -hmm. They are intentionally trying to distract us from our lives and it's about making a profit. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I don't have judgment about that one way or another, but, um, we need to be aware of it. And if we're, if you find focus slipping, just be aware that they're intentionally taking it. And so the only way to really separate is to stop. So I I tell my students, like, I don't check my email after eight o'clock at night Um, because if I do, I I am not going to be able to sleep because there's going to be something that sets me off and I'm not going to be able to drift off. So, but having time in the summer where, you know, you can just get away Once again, if you can't do it, you know, because you have family, you have children, you're not going to be able to do that. Well, can you take an hour Mm -hmm. and just make an alternate plan? And then I call it um, just return to the source of your inspiration. Mm, Yes. Now, for me, that's spending time in nature. If I can go on a hike, uh, my backyard, I love love to garden uh, with flowers. And so I spend like the month of May digging in the dirt and like the minute it comes like i can't do enough work like i am (laughs) digging i will dig and plant for like eight hours and think oh there's a gap and i i'll run and get more plants and i've got to put it in there like (laughs) i just immerse myself in my garden and then i spend the rest of the summer i step out there and i see the fruits of my labor Mm -hmm. i can watch the plants grow i watch the the shifting of the color throughout the garden it's so rewarding it's 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 lovely yeah it's lovely and then i also my family grew up in west virginia and i'll take road trips and i was born in charleston west virginia so i'll like make a trek and visit my uncle and just being on those mountains Mm -hmm. oh gosh yeah john denver had it right it is almost (laughs) heaven right when you get there and uh it's just i get there and i just sort of center myself I'm remind, you know all those lessons, I don't even have to think of every single thing my parents taught me about how to live my life. just being in those mountains and breathing that air brings it all right back to me. And so then when I drive out of that environment, then I'm like mm-hmm. I'm just sort of centered again. So I would you know have your listeners consider what is it that makes them feel that way. It, it could be a, a worship. Mm-hmm. It could be a community of friends. Mm-hmm. It could be a place. And it could be solitude. Like if you're a person that lives among chaos and you have so many people in your life, maybe your source of inspiration is to take time away and spend it in isolation. Absolutely. Whether it's meditating, whether it's, you know, doing whatever. But sometimes we have to separate ourselves from the chaos because that chaos tells us that we should be doing this and should be, should be, should be. Like you Mm got to separate yourself from the should be's and decide what what it is you're wanting to do.
0: I feel like the concept or sort of the culture, the culture around hustle culture kind of starts Mm. in school. Mm. And part of it is it, it kind of includes this mentality of like, you shouldn't take time off, you shouldn't take that moment to kind of pause and just be with yourself, be with your family, relax, like you constantly have to be moving and doing something and hustling. And it's kind of low-key toxic in a way, you know, to tell yeah. people that, you know, you don't really deserve to just stop and rejuvenate for a moment. You have to constantly be doing something and moving towards something. It's like, if you're always moving, you know, it's like, it's like a shark. You you stop swimming and then suddenly you you just, you drop to the bottom.
2: Yeah. yeah. I like the way you call it hustle culture. I've heard it just similarly talked about in just in terms of busyness, mm-hmm. like what back people wear that as a badge of honor, like, yeah. Oh, I'm really busy. I'm like, I just feel sad now when people right. say that to me because I'm like, oh, you're trapped. Exactly. You're yes. a, you're a hamster. You're on a wheel. Yes. You don't know how to step off, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not healthy. No, no.
1: Well, all the recent experiments about having a four day work week have proven that people are more productive during those work hours. Mm-hmm. They're happier when they're not at work, and just the general morale of everything at the organization yes. increases. Uh, you know, triple fold. So I just feel like if we could harness that kind of positivity uh, in the creative path as well, we wouldn't constantly be hitting our heads against the wall in the studio or Mm -hmm. in front of a computer screen, or uh, just recognizing that that rest away is so important. Mm -hmm. Just like younger children, having them run outside usually yields better test scores, right? We need to do something different than the norm to get something other than the norm.
2: I read a book. I can't remember the name of it now, but it was about walking. Mm -hmm. And the gentleman's out of Ireland and and did research. And and if you just have your students um, take a walk around the classroom and then sit back down, they will perform better at divergent thinking exercises. So obviously, if you could take them out inside in nature, that would yes. be even better. But if you can just stand them up and have them walk around the room and then sit back down and then say, all right, now that I gave you this prompt, walk around, sit back down. Now let's think about options. They're going to uh, have more creative options than they would if you just had them sit there and work on the prompt a- immediately after you deliver it. Yes, It's almost like recharging lets you recharge. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's right. <blood> flow. <laughs> Imagine that. I, I mean, yeah. More connectivity.
0: So kind of our our last question um, on the topic of leisure is advice for people who might be interested in becoming educators. What are some, you know, perspectives that you might have around that?
2: Yes. If they want to be educators, um, they need to go out into some classrooms and see what's happening and see what it, you know, and look for the positive because uh, a lot of people are really overworked right now. And so it's easy to focus on what's negative, but if you focus on the audience that you would be working with and what they have to offer uh, and make sure it's something that you want to do, I think would be key. Um, in terms of college, like I see a lot of people enter college and, uh, you know, it used to be you just sort of, I know I'm going to college and I guess I'll decide what I'm going to major in when I get there. And With the price these days, like, if you want to get done and move on, like, you really need to invest in some work ahead of time. And so and the beauty is, you know, when I went to school, we didn't have the internet. So you just had to show up and hope you knew what to major in. But now every possible job and major is at your fingertips. So you can do a personal inventory, find out what your skills are. And then think like, you know, do you want to work with people? Do you want to work by yourself? Do you want to have deadlines? No, like there's different things to consider. And then when you start college, the sooner you can declare your major and then work with an advisor who's in your major, the more likely you are to get through and be successful on a, the time frame that the student wants, right? Mm-hmm. That, that they want. Um, but I see people who take classes that aren't going to count towards their major, And they don't know it because they never bothered to ask, right? Because we're in that culture again, like we have to, you know, you're supposed to pretend to know what you're doing and it's seen as weakness to go and ask somebody for advice or help. And yet, you know, if you take one class, that's hundreds of dollars. Yeah. You know, so in mind, if they're going to be an art educator, like they can't take a class for non-majors. Watercolor for non-majors doesn't count. Mm -hmm. So like, you have to take classes. You are a major, you know. Research. Yes. That's right. So that would be the. um, And then there's some classes that you get like double duty. Like they'll count for two areas. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So like you need a gen ed, but then you also need this required class in art education. Oh, guess what? They both count for the same thing. And so, you know, if you don't know that and you take some other class, you might end up paying for two classes when you could have just paid for one and Mm -hmm. knocked out that requirement. Oh, every everybody's major has something like that. And so once again, your advisors know what those little tricks are. And so that's important to but then, you know, just persevere. And the other thing is be willing to stand up. If you're paying for your education yourself, then obviously everything's your decision. But Mm -hmm. if you have family helping you pay for your education, I advise just have the tough conversation Mm -hmm. early Like, um, you know, if you don't want to be a dentist, just tell them right up front, like, I would rather go dance. Yes, I would really mm-hmm. rather be painting. Yes. I don't want to be an attorney. Mm-hmm. I would really, um, I understand having a business degree makes sense. And and maybe if you're going to be an artist, having a business degree would be helpful, but mm-hmm. eh, maybe having a few painting and drawing classes is right. going to help you more. And you could always take a seminar in business to help you. Mm-hmm. But um, I see too many freshmen come out and they're majoring in what their parents' mm. hopes and dreams are. And then they almost, I wonder sometimes if they don't start to fail, right? It's passive resistance. Right. Oh, yeah, I tried that, mom and dad, but you know, I'm not <laughs> successful at it. So why don't I come over here and do this other thing? Meanwhile, you're a year behind, you're in debt, right. and you could just have the hard conversation. And parents, I would encourage parents listening to oh, yeah. like really look at your child and... They're going to be like that notion that you can't be successful and you can't support yourself in the arts. Mm-hmm. That's an old paradigm. It's outdated, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's
0: not true anymore. I mean, starving
2: artists. Yeah. No, no. no. <laughs> and with something like and people have differing opinions about Etsy, for example, but mm-hmm. Etsy is a site that allows anybody, mm-hmm. anybody can just start a site and start selling their work mm-hmm. today. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not paid to advertise for them, but I just see people making their right. lives happen. That'd be one way to get a quick start and then branch that out into something more substantial. I know um, plenty of designers that are on creative
1: market. Mm-hmm. I mean, selling yeah. their brush sets and yes. making uh, six. Sometimes I've heard seven figures on yep. there and that's wow. largely passive income. Mm-hmm. So really, wow. anything is possible now with the Internet.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you really can. There's platforms that allow you to just make your own space, mm-hmm. and uh, you can make a living doing this. So parents who worry that their children can't support themselves, mm-hmm. I think um, I would challenge that perspective. The, d- the digital economy has changed
0: so much of the way that people work and that we're able to make money that I think it's it's definitely made you know the arts a much more viable you know career option for people that it may have been you know however many years ago because yeah you literally can just create an account somewhere, start selling your, your texture packs. You could be designing websites. A lot of this work can be done remotely. So it's, yeah. it's a complete game changer.
2: Wow. There's beautiful website templates. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you want your own website, like bam, mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't Go have ahead. to pay a fee, but they're beautiful. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dr. Cam, did
1: you by chance have time to come up with a tactic that you would give away like a practical to do? oh, that's a good question. And if you didn't, it's
2: completely fine because Hafsa and I always have a list of them (laughs) to share. Well, I will tell you um, if they're not exactly mine, but, you know, I uh, recently have been um, recording my own podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, Engaging Process, where art education and art making meet. And it's a small series right now. I interviewed six artists that I work with at the university, and I asked them about their practices. And I end that session um, with tips. And consistently, as I listen to them, and I watch and I look at their practice, they I ask them to give me photographs, of their studios. um, They're just doing it. Mm -hmm. I know that Nike said just do it right, but (laughs) and not to promote them. But um, you do just have to carve out a little bit every day. And years ago, I heard uh, Faith Ringgold speak at the Ohio Art Education Association conference. And she said, you just every day you have to be working in your practice. So you need to organizing your paint brushes is working. Mm-hmm. Yes. Making a list of new materials is working. Now, if all you're doing is creating a beautiful space and no work is happening, well, then then you're just sort of stalling. <laughs> right. Sure. But um Like I recently started making a space. I listened to them and I was so inspired. So I was like, I want to be printmaking. So I started working in my, I just started transitioning into my family room because it has great lighting and putting a table where I can do some printmaking. And I spent, I've worked two sessions there now. And is there something in there that I want to frame? Yeah, not yet. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you what I've learned Mm -hmm. and I can tell you what I like about what I've done so far and what I don't like about what I've done so far. And that motivates me to then just keep going. And of course, for me, it's nice because as I do that, I'm modeling how to document practices for my art educators Mm -hmm. so I can share with them my successes and failures. But then I also want a creative generative life. I'm not interested in selling my work. Mm -hmm. I just want to make work I feel connected to and proud of. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. doing it is the key building a community is the key and realizing you don't need fancy Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. You do not need a fancy space. Like I've seen people paint in, make a studio that is like three feet by five feet. Mm -hmm. It's basically the size of a table, but they sit down and they do that work. Yeah, And then realizing that when you make something like you're not making a painting, you're making brushstrokes. Yes, Mm
0: -hmm. exactly.
2: Right. I wrote a dissertation, but you know what? I didn't. I wrote a sentence (laughs) and then another one and another one, you know, and over like two years Mm -hmm. I had this lovely document that I could feel really proud of, but I did not just write a dissertation. It's the same thing with art making, right? Don't get so hung up on the big A. Mm -hmm. Experiment. That's what the school of art leaders taught me. We read a really good book and it focused on experimentation. If you can focus on what you're doing as an experiment, don't worry about calling it art. Then as you look at your collection of experiences, maybe there is something in there. Mm -hmm. Wow. I love that.
1: That's really potent. Just do it. That was a wonderful tactical piece. I don't know if we need to read the other one.
0: No. I mean, basically these are other versions of that.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. So do we want to hop right into homework assignments? Let's hop into it. Let's do it. Okay. Um, Well, the first one that we're going to suggest is What is something that you can learn in the next seven days that will enhance your creative life? Even if it's just getting really good at one function in an Adobe program or you've forever wanted to learn how to crochet. And today's the day that you're finally going to go onto YouTube and look for how to crochet for beginners. So do that. You're going to do it. Just do it. Don't worry about it. That's
0: great advice. (laughs) So whether you're a list maker or a procrastinator, Try to create a to do list that only has three items on it daily for one week. It should be approachable, fairly urgent, and you should feel good when you get the three things done. Could be anything. Mm -hmm. I like that. I should do that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Do it, Hafsa. I feel myself making lists already. Exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it all
1: come I think it all comes back to making lists. It's I know.
2: What if you're not sharks. a
1: list maker? We're telling not? everybody to make lists, know. but I think that's okay. It's okay. Just just give try it. A shot. Try it. Just do it. It doesn't hurt.
0: Exactly.
2: Yeah. And there's apps for that. There are. Yes. There's so many apps. Yes. So if you do like your mm-hmm. digital, you know, Google Keep is a really has yes. a really good I check. I like that it has the check boxes. Yes. I feel satisfaction, and then it and marks then it, it, off. it off. Right. Oh, I love that. So it feels good. really satisfying. Very much so. Can I just say thank you? I just really appreciate the fact that you've um, acknowledged the work that's happening in art education, and I really appreciate you taking the time to have me in studio to um, talk to your audience, your listeners. Uh, It's meant a lot to me, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Hosfa and Yen. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, oh my gosh. Well, we appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time to come and chat with us. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I'm confident our listeners are going to get
1: a lot out of hearing this. I certainly have.
0: No, it's been great.
1: Thank you, Dr. Cam. And the enthusiasm and, um, the expertise behind what you say, everything feels like it's so commonsensical, Mm. but we forget, right. We forget to pause and say, how should we have done this? How should we have learned this? How can we unlearn the bad habits that we're doing and just offer ourselves some grace? Mm. Well, thank you. Fantastic. On the next episode, we're going
0: to have creative director and brand strategist Pete Baker joining a conversation around building your own brand. Um, I think this will be a really interesting topic for all of us out here who are just trying to establish ourselves as creative and artistic professionals, find work and win not just clients, but really good working relationships. If you like this podcast, be sure to heart, like, and subscribe to Cadence wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at at Cadence Podcast, or check out our episodes and more at thecadencepod.com. We are proudly based in Ypsilanti, Michigan, recording from the podcast studio at Venue by 4M in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we hope that wherever you're creating from in the world, you are marching to your own Cadence.